There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to The Ruler Podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson. And on this edition, we'll be looking ahead far from the winter, which is currently enveloping much of Europe, to the glorious summer of Grand Tours ahead of us. And what an interesting summer it looks like being, not least because Team Sky, who've dominated the Tour de France in particular for many years now, are facing a year of considerable change. So I'm joined by Ruler editor Andy McGrath. Um, Should we start chronologically then? Should we look at the Giro? First of all, yeah, three grand tours are kind of like in January. It's like the three big music festivals, like I suppose Glastonbury, Coachella, and Reading and Leeds. Reading and Leeds, <laughs> yeah, something like that. Where you're wondering who's going to be signed up, who's going to be playing. Like, will the Strokes be at Glastonbury, for example? Which I really hope they will. Um, so we know what most of the big riders are now doing for the Giro and Tour, anyway. And then the ones. That, they get injured maybe in one of those will end up at the Vuelta a bit as well, plus the Spaniards. It's going to come along quicker than we realise, just like the season has. And it's been an off-season of lots of change as well, hasn't it? Because a lot of the big names are wearing different kit this year in different teams. Different names. Like hopefully by 2020 I'll be calling De Kernink, De Kernink and not Quickstep. CCC and now BMC. EF Education first have that tie-dye pink-blue kit that will be very hard to miss. It's just getting used to where these riders are, all the moves. That will take a while, won't it? The Giro, um, what sort of a race is it looking? It is almost entirely contained north of Rome, which is very different to last year, where uh, obviously it started slightly controversially in Israel and went to, I think, Sicily afterwards and then the mainland. Um, yeah, it's starting in Bologna with a 8K prologue, which is flat for the first 6K. Then it uh, again, to 200 metres of altitude in the last 2K, going up to the sanctuary of San Luca, which is where I think the Giro dell'Emilia and October one-day race always finishes. Very hard, very photogenic climb. So that will... I think some people like uh, Tom Dumoulin, Nibali, that's perfect for. For the Giro, it's a pretty conventional first week. Um, you've got some long stages... So starting on the east and then go to San Giovanni Rotondo, which is where Padre Pio is from. He's a famous Italian saint. There's a stage to Laquia, stage seven, uh, which is quite hilly. It's the capital of Abruzzo. It was devastated by an earthquake ten years ago because it's right in the middle of the fault line. And I always remember it because in the 2010 Giro, there was like a stage that typifies the Giro and its anarchy. 
I think like 40 odd riders got away on a 260k hilly stage like it was excessive and like put 12 minutes um, into most of the, of the GC contenders it was just crazy I think it was raining Richie Port who was a neo pro then took the uh took the pink jersey I should say took the pink jersey and uh held it for a week and it was just it was mental like that that doesn't happen anymore it doesn't happen often but that's always stuck with me that stage have they managed to find normally the Giro managed to find some new climb or some particularly unpleasant climb that they haven't included before is there anything like that this year it's quite backloaded like the Giro normally is like the first two weeks not easy but the last week is is crazy in the Alps and in into the Dolomites for a bit. Um, the penultimate stage finishes on the Croce Downey, which I'm not sure how many times that's been in the Giro. That's where Tullio Campagnolo invented the, or had the uh, inspiration for the quick release. Um, and that's a day of 5,000 metres of climbing. That's pretty tough. And you've got one a few, I think, uh, stage 16 to Ponte di Legno has nearly 6,000 metres of climbing. It's got the Gavia midway through and then the Mortarolo and 30k descent so those are the those are the bread and butter the iconic Italian climbs that is going to devastate the race like so there'll be a lot of holding back for that last week there's some long stages in the Giro I think it's the Grand Tour with the most stages over 200 kilometers as well and there's a longish time travel into San Marino stage nine that will have a big impact it's 35k flat for the first 20k and then it just goes up, up goes off a big mountain basically in, into this quirky landlocked principality which i think san marino is it sounds like quite an intriguing race this year are we any clearer as to which of the big names have sort of got the giro as one of their targets yes i i've got to thank cafe roubaix for putting it into a concise tweet for me in his own words, uh, what a Giro it's shaping up to be. You know, Fabio Aru, Egan Bernal, Chavez on the comeback trail, Tom Dumoulin. Um, I quite like seeing proper contenders doing the Giro and the Tour, like really risking it there. Who else? Bob Jungle should be there. Mikel Landa. Nibali is he over the hill. I think he's about 34, 33, 35. Valverde is down for it. Michael Woods could kick on from his World Champs bronze medal. He'll be there. Simon Yates has unfinished business. Should be a great race. It's always, it always throws up surprises. Well, on to July then and the Tour de France this year, yeah. um, which also looks like it might throw up a few surprises, uh, not least on the Sky front, because it's going to be an interesting tour for Team Sky, isn't it? That's right. I mean, it's whether they have um, a backer by then as well. Again, it's... Uh, Kind of, kind of like the thing with Quickstep, who are struggling to find a primary sponsor until fairly late on in the season. If Sky can't find someone, then what does that say about the model of pro cycling? I mean, it's whether they can find someone to uh, put in, I think it's 25 million euros or 30 million euros, whatever their budget is, or whether they have to compromise. That's probably more likely that it'll be a smaller budget. Not lose riders. But if a team that's won so many grand tours and has so many big riders can't attract a sponsor, then it, it is a interesting comment on, on pro racing, isn't it, and the way it's funded? Yeah, it's pretty worrying. It would probably uh, even up, I suppose, a playing field if they went to other teams, but that 
but you shouldn't be wishing for cycling's richest best grand tour team by country mile to break up or to lose many riders like that's not healthy for the sport and if the future is still uncertain for sky presumably all their riders are going to be in the marketplace and looking to show off throughout the whole of july presumably i mean the transfer system's a bit stupid really because you can't i think you can't officially announce anything to august the first or it might be september the first but all the talking and the real deals are done in march april may maybe for that, that that's when all the proper big rider deals are start to be done for next year so it's a bit strange but the tour route i mean it starts in brussels i think it'll be what is it 50 years since Merckx's first tour de france win there's a flat stage that includes the Mur de Herasbergen, which should be good. There's a team time trial on day two. That's good. Get it out of the way early because for riders, there's a real art to time to team time trialing. But for spectators, let's face it, it's pretty dull and pretty forgettable in the whole tour context. It heads south and east. Um, there's a stage from Bach, one of the poorest cities in Belgium. I, I was there in October for a one-day race um, with there's mass unemployment there from Barche to Epinay, which is the capital of the Champagne region, which is renowned for Champagne. La Planche de Belfi, that's the first big test, stage six. I think they've tarmacked an extra kilometre of road above the already steep, short, steep climb. So it, it'll be even harder. And there's a fair few steep climbs before that. So that'll be the first examination for all the contenders. There's no cobbles this year either, which is probably a sigh of relief for the likes of Quintana. Well, everyone, really. Yeah, because it's so unpredictable when you have cobbles, particularly early on in the tour, isn't it? It is. I think, uh, as we saw last year, it was more a case of just surviving and not losing time is the most crucial thing. Um, I saw an interesting quote, um, someone saying that the tour route is on paper normally the easiest of the three, but it's so fast and so nervous that tends to be the toughest as well for that reason because every day is all out, uh, all out racing and there's always someone racing for something. So that's something to consider. And then it heads into the Massif Central. You've got a stage from Saint-Étienne to Brioude, uh, which is variously the football team and main city of Romain Bardet, finishing in Brioude, his hometown. Romain Bardet is, of course, a new columnist for Rouleau in 2019. So watch out for his words of wisdom. But nothing, yeah, there's no high, high mountains for the first 10 days. Then we head into Pyrenees. Stage 12 is a bit of a taster over the Peyresord to Bagnier de Bigorre. But you've got to wait until really stage 14 for, for a proper, tough, deciding stage. That's only 120k from Tarbes to, to the Tourmalet. So it goes over the Col de Soulor and then from 80k on, it's up the Tourmalet. So that's the shortness of that stage. I'm interested in how that will be raced. You'd hope it will be all out, but are they going to hold their cards close to their chest? We'll see. The Alps will decide it. Tough stages with some iconic climbs. Stage 18 from Embrun to Valois. You've got the Col de Var, the Col des Oades, and the Col de Glibier before a 15k descent. And these are all climbs around or over 2,000 metres. There'll be no hiding. Um, it's a 200k stage. That is hard. That, that's bloody hard. Art. Three weeks into a Grand Tour. And then after that, you've got a day to Tigne, 
uh, over the Col de Liseron. Doesn't see much service in the Tour de France. It's very long and very high. I think it tops out about 2,800 metres or so. And it's otherworldly. I, I was just talking to a ruler contrib at the weekend uh, who knows it very well. And she was saying that it feels like you climb up in different stages of vegetation and landscape and you really do feel like you're on top of the world there. So it kind of made me want to go there, actually. And then the penultimate stage from Albeville uh, to Val Torrens is uh, 131k over the Cormier de Rosalande quite early on. And then you've got the short, sharp climb to Val Torrens. And I think in recent tours... They've made a habit of having this spectacular finale and then kind of starting late in Paris the next day. So it could go all the way to the last week. It should go all the way to the last week. I mean, looking at how formulaic, let's face it, the Tour de France is, there are some hilly stages through the Vogue and the Massif Central, and there will be people that crash out. There will be a few surprises. I mean, let's face it, the Tour is a race with the fewest surprises. I think all the stage winners last year were people you'd expect to be winning stages. I just hope it's a bit closer than last year, as a speaking with my fan hat on, if I can do that. And I hope Team Sky don't have it all their own way. And then we mustn't forget the Vuelta. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like it's a long way away. But that said, it is often one of the most enterprising Grand Tours for its route and the way and the manner it's raced. Um, even if you do get a few of the kind of sick notes who crash in the Giro or crash in the Tour and are looking to salvage their season. But it can be a good combination there, actually, you know. Those that, that need to get a result and the Spaniards, like, I'd imagine, Enrique Mass will be going for that and a few others. It starts near Alicante in uh, Salinas de Torre Vieja, which is one of the poorest places in, in Spain, actually, with a 18k TT, which is quite... Quite long for an opener, actually. That's not a prologue. Heads north up the coast through Calpe, which many World Tour teams will know because they just spent the winter there. Uh, the first summit finish is stage five, up at 2,000 metres. That's pr- pretty damn early for a Grand Tour, but that's what the Vuelta does. It just throws it at you. Here you go. And then the mountains come thick and fast, like you'd expect with the Tour of Spain. Like It's one of the most mountainous countries in Europe anyway, and they certainly don't duck it. Stage nine is 96k, and it's just packed with mountains um, through Andorra, finishing at Cortals Doncamp. Um, it's absolutely brutal. I think there's about 4,000 metres of climbing or something in less than 100k, uh, just before a rest day, a well-earned rest day. But after that, it heads into the Basque Country to, to Bilbao, where the fans will be out in force. And It's very hilly, actually. It, it's kind of like medium mountain, but, but there could be surprises there. Something important to note is there's no stage over 200k. So it's going to be short and sharp. Nothing more than five, five and a half hours of racing. That'll be interesting. One question a lot of people will want to know um, or will be thinking of is, um, you know, are we going to see three British Grand Tour winners again? In my opinion, no. Uh, that's a remarkable thing to have three different Grand Tour uh, Brits winning. Froome, you'd think, is going for the fifth tour. That's probably the biggest possibility there. Simon Yates has unfinished business. It doesn't mean necessarily that he's going to win the Giro, but I could see a head-to-head there with Dumoulin and the Vuelta. Well, of course, I haven't even mentioned the Tour de France champion, Geraint Thomas. And it's still not 100% clear what he's going to be doing 
no. this year at all, was it? Personally, I thought it would have been really cool if he'd renounced the Grand Tours for a year because his heart does lie with the Cobble Classics and he's shown that he's very good at the Cobble Classics. How cool would it have been for him to say, well, well I want to win the Tour of Flanders and that's going to be my aim. I want to win Paris-Roubaix, that'll be my aim. And to show his versatility, even with the top 10, who was the last Tour champion to really target that? But of course, there's, once you win the Tour once and you've got the commercial pressures and you've got a massive contract, why not try and win it again? I still find it hard to think of him as a Tour winner, but it was so emphatic and so controlled and almost flawless. It's like, well, if he's done it once, why can't he do it again? It's going to be an interesting year, isn't it? It is, yeah. I certainly hope so, anyway, yeah. Ruler editor Andy McGrath. Now, if you've ever seen one of those clips from inside the team cars at the Tour de France, you'll almost certainly have heard our next guest's voice. Sebastian Piquet is the voice of Radio Tour, the communication channel which keeps all the team cars, officials and journalists across what's going on in the race. He's also probably the voice you've heard interviewing winners on TV in a range of languages straight after the stage has finished. He's a busy man. I am the voice of race radio, Radio Tour, on the Tour de France. So I'm sitting in the red car uh, of race direction just behind the pack and I explain what goes on uh, in the race, so what I can actually see uh, if, if, uh, if a rider punctures, if a rider uh, crashes, and what uh, my eyes on the race tell me. My eyes are on the race are the three motorbike guys that are at the front and that explain what, what's going on with the breakaway riders. Uh, and, and we speak on a, on a special channel, and then uh, they tell me what's going on, the time gaps, etc. and I say all that on, uh, on race radio for... In priority for um, the team cars, but also for the journalists that might be on motorbikes or uh, in cars and are eventually uh, at the finish uh, commentating, like Rob Hatch, for example. Do you do it to everyone at the same time, or there are different buttons? Okay, so everybody hears the same thing, pretty much. What I say on race radio, on Radio Tour, goes to everyone, so I can't get it wrong. So it's quite a high-pressure uh, job because presumably you're, you, you're there for hours every day. Yeah, well, yeah, there's, there's, there's pressure, I guess, because uh, it's important. And, and what I say, if I say something wrong, it can have repercussions. So I have to get it right. Uh, and I'd rather say uh, nothing than say something wrong. Uh, it happened in the past where uh, in the car someone told me that... Uh, there was a crash, I mean, there was a crash, and then someone in the car said, oh, that's Cavendish on the ground. And so immediately said, oh, crash, Mark Cavendish caught in the crash. And one kilometer later, he won the stage. So, you, yeah, you, know, you don't want to get that wrong. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of pressure. The, the days are very long, uh, sometimes five, six hours. So you have to remain focused on what goes on. You can't have a snooze. You can't uh, sleep uh, even for five minutes because anything can happen at any moment. A crash, a puncture, a rider asking for a... For, for a bottle, anything can happen. Uh, and presumably it's, it's stressful for the, your driver as well. It is. I think it's probably a lot more stressful for the driver because he has to be extremely focused on what he's doing, especially on descents. And that's why um, on all the races I work on, uh, and I know it's the case of the ASO races, it's the case also on World Championships, they uh, always have former riders who are driving the cars because they know exactly how a rider will react because they're, they're used to riding in a peloton so driving in a car behind a peloton they know then they know what's going to happen 
they know uh, depending on on the wind depending on 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 the climbing on the descents they know how to react what's the atmosphere like actually inside that car tense at the beginning tense in the middle tense at the finish no i'm joking no it's 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 always tense at the beginning because you know you want the race to to, to take off in 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 a, in a nice way uh then there are more relaxing moments when uh, a breakaway is is established when you know that you have three guys at the front that the gap is around six seven minutes those moments are more relaxing uh and then it's a lot of tension um in in the final moments of of a sprint stage for example where well, you know, you, you have to keep your eyes on, on what goes on, uh, on potential crashes. And, and in the car, there's, there's pressure because you have uh, just behind me the, the president of the race commissaires. So he has a, an eye on everything. And you have uh, Thierry Gouvenou, who is the race director of the Tour de France. And he designed the course. So he wants everything to go well. And he knows that in 300 meters, there's a left turn that's potentially dangerous. So there's, there's tension there, I, I suppose, and pressure. And just for clarity, are you doing this in French all the time? Or is, are there a range of uh, languages? I do it so that everyone understands. So I know that everyone understands either French or English. So I'll do it in French and in English. Eventually... I will add Spanish to it, and sometimes Italian. But basically, the idea is to give as much information as possible on Radio Tour, but not to give too much information, because I'm going to bore everyone if I start speaking in, 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 in three, four different languages. I know that everyone understands English, everyone understands French, uh, and so I, I need to be precise and just make sure that, uh, that, that people understand what's going on in the race. And, and when there is a breakaway or you know, a development up ahead, h- how do you know? How do you know how far away the breakaway is? How do you do the, the, those timings? Or how do you get those timings? On races like the Tour de France and on Paris-Roubaix, uh, I have three Moto Info guys. So three uh, guys who work on their motorbikes. They're at the front of the race. They have a special channel where they can speak to me. And they tell me what goes on. They tell me if there's a breakaway, kilometer 20, three riders in the breakaway, number 75, number 111, number 123. So they will, they will give me the, the identity of the riders in the breakaway. And, um, and they, work, they, work, they work together to, 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 to do time gaps between the breakaway and the peloton. And they will give me all that information on a special uh, channel that I will hear. And then I will give it officially on... Radio Tour. Are they riding with stopwatches? Though? Yeah, they're riding with uh, three stopwatches. Uh, I have. I, I really admire what they do because they they are really the heart of, of Radio Tour. They take risks on descents. Uh, they have to keep an eye on the riders. They have to keep an eye on the stopwatch, and they have to keep an eye on um, on on different places where time gaps have been launched. So, for example, uh, a fat man on the right hand side of the road. That's where the, the, the gap started with the breakaway. So when they arrive with the peloton uh, on that person, wow, the, the stopwatch stops. So, so they, they, they really have to be extremely focused on what they do. And there again, um, we always take, well, we try to always take uh, men or women, actually, who have been riders or professional riders. I have my main radio tour guy is a guy called Bruno Thibault who rode the Tour de France several times, uh, including at uh, Motorola, uh, riding uh, or Castorama. And uh, he is, he is uh, he's outstanding on a motorbike. 
it's outstanding. Have you had a look at this year's uh, tour route? Yes, I actually worked on it uh, because I, I, I don't only do uh, race radio, I also uh, work on the, the, um, the press releases that uh, ASO uh, prepare. So I, I actually knew the route before the tour, but shh, I'm not telling anyone. And, and, and what, what are you looking forward to in particular next year? It's going to be extremely uh, moving, I guess, uh, to start in Brussels. Uh, and go and go by where Eddie Merckx uh, uh, once lived, where he actually conquered his first yellow jersey. So that's going to be pretty emotional to be in Belgium. Being in Belgium is also always a special moment for the Tour de France. It was the case in Liège. It'll be the case again um, this year in, in Brussels. La Planche de Belfi will be a, a key stage. And then uh, it'll be also interesting to see how riders react to high altitude. This year we're going above 2,000 meters several times. I think over six times, Val Thorens, Tigne, uh, Tourmalet. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how, how the, right rea- the riders react to high altitude, because that's a key factor. I think it'll be one of the key factors to next year's Tour de France. So it's time to catch up with uh, Rulo's Desire Editor, Stuart Clapp. Happy New Year, Stuart. Happy New Year, mate. Yeah, and uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, Grand Tours then? Oh, I don't want to talk about Grand Tours yet, because it's January. Who talks about Grand Tours apart from you lot uh, in, in January? Geraint Thomas riding the Giro. I, I, I've, th- this rumour is, what you know, he's going to clarify he's going for the Giro or the Tour. Or both. Or, or Yeah, it's unlikely uh, he's more likely to go for the tour because isn't he still in LA at the moment watching uh, NFL games and drinking beer and, and eating hot dogs? According to his Instagram, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and like you know, he he might be carrying a couple of pounds. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to fat shame anyone, especially not a world class athlete like that. But the Giro's um, it's quite famously quite lumpy, isn't it? And it's quite soon as well. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's not it's not a million miles off, and uh, I don't think anyone could get in shape uh, in the shape that you'd need to win it, um, let, let alone even get round it um, in in that sort of time. So I, I imagine he might be going, but it would be in support of someone else. But um, yeah, I can't see him going for the Giro. I think it would be the Tour. But this goes back to what we were saying before when we when I was in Mallorca with Sky, like. They're saying, oh, yeah, this is this is going to be for them, this is going to be for them, this is going to be for them. It's like, yeah, but at the end of the year, this team, well, it's, it's unlikely it's going to be around. And if it is, it's not going to be in the shape that it's in now. You're going to have a lot of riders that are going to be kind of riding for themselves um, in these situations because, you know, the world tour points and then there's the world tour points that have been backdated from the year before and it's all very confusing. Um, so I don't know. I can't talk about, but that that was the the longest way of saying I can't talk about Grand Tours yet. It? it does feel a bit odd talking about Grand Tours. We haven't had the classics yet, and actually, we're still riding cyclocross, aren't we? Well, yeah, yeah. I went to the Nationals yesterday. It was brilliant. I've never been to a Nationals before. I've been to a, lot, a few cyclocross races, but you, I've got an idea about cyclocross races that's probably going to sit with about three percent of our listeners and that is if mario cipollini didn't do it then it's not worth following it so if cipollini did cyclocross which would never happen in a million years then it would be cool but cyclocross is just you know it's quite barbaric but actually i've come around i'm into it freezing but really good and the racing was 
incredible. Really, really good racing. The course was amazing. This was the one over at Cycler Park in Gravesend. So it's not a million miles from me. So we drove round, took about a thousand years to park. Um, we got there as the women's race was going on. And it was, yeah, storming. Really good. I ate Belgian Fritz and I drank beer. And then I went off beer because it was making my hand cold and started drinking warm cider, which was sort of like an alcoholic apple tea. We were saying quite recently uh, on the podcast that actually it's surprising, you know, cyclocross would make such a good TV sport. It's surprising it's not more popular in the, in the UK. Yeah, it's, it's so easy to follow. Well, it's e- easy to follow when the cameras are on it. Actually, when, when you're there, this is the good thing about taking part in a cyclocross race, is the fact that after the first lap, no one knows where anyone is anyway, and everyone just cheers for everyone. It's actually, it's really nice. It's not like, like a crit where there's the lump, there's the peloton, there's someone have gone off down the road, these lot are off the back. You know what I mean? It's like, it's quite cool. But yeah, my wife says cyclocross looks like rugby on bikes. It's kind of, you know, dirty and muddy. And I actually took her to a race once years back over at Deer's Leap. And she couldn't couldn't get over how grim it was and couldn't see me doing it, which which is true. I've only ever done one race, but I've I like going, like my mates all do it and I go and watch and actually the nationals like was you know, bit with it being up the road and free. This is the thing about cycling. Like, you know, the night before I went to watch a, a football match and uh, I paid good money to watch a load of rubbish. Cycling is is so inclusive, isn't it? It's like you're right there, it's free. The Nationals was free. You turned up. You watched the race. It was just great. It was really good entertainment, despite the weather being absolutely freezing. Now, Stu, you are a Desire editor for Ruler. So have you? Uh, what's your professional opinion of some of the new season's kits, in particular the EF Rafa kit? Well, that's quite something, isn't it? It uh, reminds me of Lamprey. So I saw someone tweet something. I don't know who said it. Whoever it is. This is this is perfect. It looks like a lamprey kit through cataracts was what someone someone posted, and I thought that's brilliant. It is a bit like that, but there's a real nod to like the uh, late '90s, 2000s sort of garage scene in it because it's sort of it's like you know some people would go it's tie dye. I'm looking at it and I'm thinking of those global hypercolour T-shirts. The ones that change colour when you got hot. Those are the ones. Yeah, they were a real bad idea, weren't they, really? The kits are lovely. Like, the kit doesn't change colour. Just to be clear, the kit does not change colour. That would be quite good, though. It would. Yeah, it would be cool. It would change. But the thing is, you'd be looking out for your teammate. Be like, Where, where'd he go? Or you'd know he wasn't working as hard as you, mate. Hang on, I've changed colour. You haven't. They've got, they, yeah, those T-shirts used to go, like, you'd have a great big, like it'd be a pink T-shirt with a lot of yellow ring under your armpit or something, which was, you know, great. Well, you've made this fabric that can change colour with heat, but also, mate, you've you've just I can see you, I can see your sweat patches under your arms. You've highlighted it, you know, in a in a fluoro colour, and that's probably why what stemmed from the bucket hat that they've also done to match this EF um, Education First kit. You, you know what the bucket hat was, wasn't it? Well, you, you know, because you're a radio guy and you probably would have been there in the 90s when they were, they, were, they, were, they were a thing, the rave scene. Like what the Gallaghers used to wear as well. Yes, yes, yes. Exactly what the Gallaghers wore. But, they, but, but back in the end of the 90s, 2000s, and I can date this because I had an Ivisu one, which I lost in a breakup. But I don't want to get started on that. But anyway, the hat, it's like this EF energy thing is like a pink and blue number. 
and um, and and, it, and this and the bucket hat matches. Hang on a minute, I'm still thinking about that Avisu hat. That still winds me up now. So she, in fact, she broke up with me on the way home. I was coming home on a train. And I'm afraid there we must leave Stuart to his memories of rave romance gone wrong, because that's all we have time for on this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another one soon. But out of everything, she kept my Avisu bucket hat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.